Hello, welcome to Epicenter Bitcoin, the show which talks about the technologies, projects, and startups driving decentralization and the global cryptocurrency revolution. My name is Sebastian Kuchu. And I'm Brian Parvain Crane. Uh, today, our guest is Tom Ding. He's the CEO of Coinify. Uh, Coinify is a funding platform for decentralized applications. And previously, he was a senior manager at eBay. And before that, he worked at Alibaba and uh, did his own startup as well. Um, Hello, so, everyone. Welcome, Tom. Thanks. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being on. So, uh, you, you, for, for those of you listening to us right now and, and not watching, uh, this is actually our first live Google Hangout. Um, we're recording live on, on Hangout now. We don't have any viewers. Uh, we have one viewer, apparently, one person watching. So this is something that we've been wanting to do for a little while, and uh, we're trying it out for the first time tonight with, uh, with Tom. Um, so we will most likely continue doing this. Uh, we're, we're trying it out tonight, see how, how it works. And, uh, and so far, so good, because I think people can still hear us. Uh, just uh, uh, sort of off topic, I guess. Do you guys know how you can not make this video disappear when you look at other? Is there some way to like overlay the video? What do you know? Yeah, uh, it's fine. It's fine. Actually, yeah. Uh, I think it, um, I think it'll take care of itself. Uh, it, the video of the person speaking is what shows up in priority. Yeah, so uh, I, I'm really excited about today's episode. And uh, yeah, I contacted Tom after uh, reading about his uh, funding round, and then we can come back to that later. But uh, it's, a, you know, it's a topic that we've come to many times, uh, sort of from different angles. We've talked about decentralized <coughs> applications many times, you know, whether it's uh, Ethereum, uh, we've had on uh, several episodes on that. And also crowdfunding, we've had quite a few episodes on. So we've had one with Mike Hearn, we've had uh, one with Swarm. Uh, I think we've had some more, no? Um, uh, we've also thought a lot about the, the legal implications of that. So uh, it's really interesting to get kind of uh, talk about another project in the same area. And it's uh, what I was especially impressed with was that you've raised money as well from kind of traditional venture capitalists. And it seems such a... A controversial area as well that uh, I thought that was quite interesting. But uh, perhaps to get started, can you give us uh, a bit of an overview of what Coinify is? Sure. Um, so Coinify, in like a very simple way to put it, it would be an angel list or the fueling and funding platform to kind of bootstrap and fund the new decentralized economy. And decentralized economy, you know, including things like decentralized applications, decentralized autonomous corporations, decentralized organization, etc. Uh, we're mostly focused on decentralized application. But we're trying to be the platform and kind of the champion to kind of bootstrap this new economy that we're really excited about. So specifically, uh, you're talking that people would develop uh, their applications on your platform or they would take existing applications and, and, and use your platform as a way to um, raise more money for development? Yeah, so I think we're trying to achieve uh, two fundamental goals. One is trying to get people who are not in the decentralized world kind of excited. There are a lot of great and talented developers. Uh, however, not enough people get involved in the decentralized space yet. Uh, they haven't started, you know, spending enough time looking into what can be built in a decentralized way. 
I think we're kind of where we are at probably, you know, back in 2007 when iOS just gets started. Everybody was excited, but not enough developers actually, you know, look into it and you know, appreciate the potential of uh, the uh, kind of the mobile. And it's similar, I would say, for decentralized economy today. So that's one of our main job, get more decentralized apps, uh, high quality apps and help them build a economy that actually makes sense. The second part, obviously, is attracting the existing DApps developers who are already working on it and get them to on our platform. Uh, the main thing we're trying to help them today is when you look at most of the funding events, I think, you know, since last year, 2013, when MasterCoin probably did one of the first crypto sale of tokens, uh, is there been quite a bit of interesting project going on. But by and large, most of the people do it on their own. And many of them do a lot of trials and errors. So there's a lot of mistakes that I think, you know, we could help them do a lot better and much more streamlined away, most importantly. So they can focus on their projects rather than building a crypto funding platform for their own each time some project goes up. And we're also trying to apply some of the really good best practices that kind of help me to do that. And we'll be talking more uh, in the next part. Uh, so just briefly, um, and maybe this is jumping ahead a little bit, but I know you've chosen a counterparty uh, as a sort of your base layer to build on top of. Does that mean yep. that uh, projects that raise money through you guys also have to build on counterparty or could you could they also do something different and just raise the money on that platform? Sure. Um, so, I mean, we as a platform are largely, you know, philosophically platform agnostic. We did start with plaf- uh, counterparty platform uh, because a, a couple of good reasons. I think one, first of all, you look for when you look for a platform, you look for technology being advanced. I think counterparty is definitely one of the most implemented and you know well developed platforms so far today. Ethereum is a little bit far away, um, and uh, sorry, uh, counterparty has some good you know wallets, uh, betting, uh, potentially you know smart contract in the future, etc. And then plus, there's also good reputation within the community. Um, so when you look at the other platform, I think counterparty has one of the strongest reputations. Uh, and also there's some liquidity there as well. You know, a number of exchanges are having counterparty as a potential token for exchange against BBC. So these are some of the criteria that we look for. And counterparty, I really like the team as well. I think they have a very, very solid team and a very long-term view of this ecosystem. Did that answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. No, um, and, and so I guess in the future, that means you would... Perhaps if a project on Ethereum wants to raise money, you would also yes. offer your services yes. on that platform, maybe yeah. in a similar way that today a, a company would build an Android app and an iOS app. Yeah, we'd be happy to look into other platforms, you know, once there's a demand built into it. Uh, the other thing, uh, you know, when some, actually some of the projects actually have their own blockchain. So the way we use, you know, for example, Counterparty is most likely going to be a proxy token when they act before they actually have an actual blockchain of their own. So in that sense, it really doesn't matter that much as in which platform we really use. Okay. Now, could you go into some of the, the core components of, of uh, Coinify? Sure. Uh, so we have a couple of things. Uh, you know, look at the whole funding cycle. One, obviously, is the token sale platform, which actually basically a very nice UI uh, that allows you to kind of the endless feel that gives you an overview of what the project is about, why is it worth backing, you know, the people behind it, et cetera, et cetera. And then a very easy way to actually put your Bitcoin and potentially fiat dollar in the future uh, that you can directly back the projects. Uh, so that's number one. The second part is, you know, once you buy the tokens, obviously you will want a tool to manage all of your kind of portfolio of tokens. 
and see how they are, you know, uh, reaching their goals and et cetera. So again, we have a wallet component. That's the second part. The third part is also we're trying to uh, partner with our you know, partners to have a number of uh, exchanges that can have these tokens. Uh, so they have enough liquidity and market depths. I think there will be three parts that's uh, kind of the core component to that. Underlying that, uh, we're also trying to build a kind of smart contract that allows the governance of the, these projects to happen. So when people back this project, they can have enough trust that the developers and the people being funded are actually delivering what they promise. And that's the smart contract part of it. And so what are some of the tools that you'll be building in order to bring that, I mean, you mentioned a while ago, the kind of ease of use, user experience aspect of all this that, that needs to be uh, developed. And so what are some of the tools that you're bringing to uh, the uh, creators of these projects and people that are investing in, in these projects? Sure. Um, on the, on, I think I should mention two parts. One on the product side, I think we're pretty confident that we have probably one of the best, most intuitive UIs, very simple, easy to use for people who are not even very well versed in the crypto space. And also the format that we present them is also extremely uh, kind of intuitive. The second part, I think, is a lot of uh, the work that we're doing behind the scenes. That is not just on a product side and website, but also the way how we select really good, high quality projects and also handhelding them on what exactly, how to build a dApp. Like many of developers, when they come to the scene, this is probably their first or second dApp they ever built. They, do, they, see, they might be really good on the technical side, but they may not uh, design the app, the dApp, in a way that has an actual business model behind it or a very solid business model. You could have a wonderful project but still has a token economy that doesn't make sense, which makes it less investable from a backer's perspective. So I think that's the other part we're trying to help them as well. So Bob, in sort of structuring the whole uh, economic underlying incentives to make sure that they align both from sort of an investor perspective, a founder's perspective, I guess your perspective as a platform and, and later a user's perspective, right? Totally, which, of course, exactly. Which, of course, they're a very tricky thing to do, you know, especially because it's also something you have to get right once, right? You have to get right, right in the beginning because very likely you won't be able to change it later. Exactly, exactly. And we have seen quite a bit, you know, screw-ups in this space. So we really want to help people in, in that area. Uh, we're not trying to be raising as much money as possible, but we're trying to establish a fair valuation of each token. Say, if this project reached X amount of users, X amount of adoption, what is the fair value of this token? What is a good distribution mechanism that will make it you know, not like a scam? Uh, you know, analogy to that would be you know, Facebook, for example, IPO. Facebook is a wonderful company in terms of revenue and profits, but the way they overprice it at the IPO time just make a bad investment and actually you know, have a really kind of bitter feel to the investor who invested early in, in the Facebook IPO. So I think that's how hard the thing that we're trying to help them figure out. Now you mentioned, you just mentioned briefly some, some of the screw-ups that we've seen in, in this space. Uh, what, what are some of the things that you've learned from, from looking at uh, other projects that you want to differentiate yourself from, uh, either from an ethical point of view or simply from a, a functional point of view? Sure. Um, happy to mention a few features that I think are fairly, um, you know, considered kind of a pioneering this place. Uh, one is... The first thing that you notice is, you know, many of the projects, especially in kind of scam coins, they raise a lot of money and they're really not really delivering uh, anything that is differentiated or based on a roadmap. So the first feature we're trying to deliver is multi-sig uh, Bitcoins. So when a Bitcoin come in, uh, Coinify doesn't hold a Bitcoin. Neither the developer holds a loan. 
So we actually want a you know, two out of three, at least, uh, multi-sig wallet where Quantify has the key, co-sign it, developer has to co-sign it, and then potentially a third-party security company or a community representative actually hold one of the keys. Uh, the, the developers are going to give us a promise, a roadmap that they promise the community and tell, hey, we have three different milestones. If we reach you know, a proof of concept number one, then we would be able to get 20%. And that's all transparent and uh, completely transparent upfront to the, to the backers. The backer will see that. Upon that point, Coinify will consign, okay, so you guys delivered what you have promised to deliver, we're gonna release the rest of the money, uh, the 20% of money. And then the same for the next cycle. So that's the first thing we're trying to do, the multi-sig uh, kind of Bitcoin wallet. So that's a, you're gonna get yourself in a, you're putting yourself in a very uh, contested position there. I can imagine there are a lot of controversies will arise sure. around decisions like that. Sure, uh, absolutely. I mean, we definitely hear pushbacks from project developers. And uh, I, th I think we would rather be more selective and work with people who want to be kind of more trustworthy and in the thinking more long term. Um, you know, yeah, definitely. But I think this is something that this community really, really needs is a trust and kind of aligned incentive uh, that we're trying to build, kind of radical transparency. The, the second part we're trying to, to, to build is the kind of the auditing. Like, how, where does the money actually go, right? So in a traditional startup, you have board of director, you have all that to kind of monitor and third-party auditors. Uh, we're also trying to bring some of the mechanics that actually makes sense uh, to kind of uh, help uh, the developers and help the community understand where the money, are they going to the right places? Uh, so that will bring a new layer of uh, kind of transparency into it. Um, yeah. And the third part is what I just mentioned about is the economic valuation. Uh, like one thing you know, kind of really surprises me, uh, astonished me, is in this community, whenever people do crowd sale, no one ever talks about what is the, the crowd sale or the token actually worth. Uh, no one valid. People just think about, hey, I need a $10 million. You know, why don't we just you know, raise $15 million? Let's see where he goes, right? Instead of talking about, is that a fair evaluation? Obviously, evaluating a DAP is hard. You know, I don't think it's any easier than evaluating a startup, which is hard too. Uh, but at least we want to provide a number of scenarios. Okay, scenario number one, if this project hits 1 million users and get X amount of transaction per day, then this token probably is worth somewhere between a dollar and $2, right? And we can provide a number of these scenarios and help that out. Uh, we would might be one of these guys doing the analysis. We might invest, uh, kind of uh, invites more independence, due diligence, or economists to do the valuation as well. So that, I think, will definitely help provide more guidance for the people who want to back these projects. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. I mean, one project that I've been sort of uh, following along very closely is Swarm because, you know, they gave a talk here. We've had them on the podcast. You know, I know those guys. Um, and I think they've done a great job in, in some ways. Uh, but uh, one thing that I find kind of striking is that uh, it was never very clear, like, how exactly is it, like, how many coins would be created? What's that distribution? It was just, uh, like, exactly. we're going to raise that money now. Exactly. Uh, and then later they came around. It's like, oh, you know, actually it works like that. And uh, exactly. there was uh, there's really a complete lack of exactly. understanding, I think, of what, what people were doing. It's sort of like in the South Park, you know, uh, one of the episodes, right? It's crowd sale, step number one, step three, profits, right? No one talks yeah. about it. <laughs> so, um, so I saw I somewhere it was mentioned i'm not sure where i got that quote but uh, i i saw you mentioning somewhere uh, uh kind of the, the the contrast between you know traditional sort of funding versus uh, uh, this type of funding 
uh, and that you know one advantage is re removing the trust. I guess that's kind of what you alluded to as well. If the possibility yep. audit to release fund gradually, yep. uh, do you think we will see uh, kind of broadly move startup funding in that direction? So uh, first of all, I think what we're trying to do, we're not doing equity funding, right? We're trying to uh, fund decentralized applications. Now, the interesting thing is decentralized application kind of blurred the line between an application and a startup or a corporation in general. Uh, it, some of the applications are so powerful by themselves when they combine with a peer-to-peer -peer user model, or you can consider them hiring these you know, employees like the miners at the Bitcoin sense. They essentially replace a traditional large corporation like Bitcoin replacing Visa you know, to some extent. Uh, so I, I think there's some blurred line there. So I wouldn't necessarily think that funding, you know, decentralized application will replace all startups. In my view, I think there will be two general directions. One is you would see a number of corporations, especially those commoditized, slow innovation ones, are going to be replaced or obsolete by the decentralized applications. On the other hand, you will continue to see a lot of very exciting you know, robotics, 3D printing. These kind of startups will continue to innovate, and that will primarily be a human-driven organization. It will not be replaced by lines of code, I don't think, any, any soon. Uh, but these companies could definitely uh, benefit from a lot of the improvement in smart contract technology, such that when they structure a company, uh, they could, you know, much more easier to fundraise, and they could have a more distributed team, and these smart contracts will help them to govern the team. That's kind of where I see the two different directions. And we obviously are more focused on the first you know, camp, but I definitely see the technology benefit on the second camp as well. So then what are some of those types of companies that you, like you mentioned that, that will become obsolete uh, through the development of decentralized applications and decentralized autonomous corporations? And so what, and so what are some of the obvious of new uh, applications uh, that can benefit from that? Sure, uh, great question. So right now, obviously, where I think we're trying to look at a case-by-case -case basis. But the pattern that I, we kind of observed a little bit is it's a few things. Number one is um, commoditization. So when you look at companies, there are all companies who have a very high innovation rate. They keep evolving their business model. They keep updating their product. And there are the other companies who are like 100 years old or uh, not quite innovating. And you have a very complicated management structure. Uh, so I think these companies... Uh, couple examples like insurance, uh, retail banking, um, you know, all these, these kind of companies are not really doing tons of business innovations. And the thing that happened with these companies is that you end up, you know, I had a, quite a bit of a experience working with corporate. So my general observation is sometimes people justify their job by creating something to do. So you will always find something to do for the CEO, for the CFO, for CXO, but the managed overhead doesn't really create tons of value. These kind of companies, I think, are perfect uh, targets for being disruptive. That's one, I think, dimension to look at it. So we're talking Numbers. about insurance, we're talking about banking, we're talking about remittance, we're talking about exactly. a whole slew of, of, uh, of sectors that can be completely Absolutely, absolutely. Or just easier. Now, any industry that is more than 50 years old, 100 years old, right? These companies, you know, limited innovation, incremental innovations, and they can very easily be replaced by employees in a gap. Uh, number two criteria is verifiable. Um, so I think it's important that right now our the, the crypto technology is still largely re, uh, limited to things that can be easily cryptographically verifiable. You know, mining is a perfect example. It's the most verifiable thing. You can easily evaluate, is that a good job, is that a bad job? 
Um, obviously, you can introduce some of the third-party evaluators, like an insurance example. You most likely will have to introduce some humans to evaluate whether some that accident really happening or that it claimed. But the more complexity in the evaluation part, the, the harder I think to decentralize them. So I think that's one of the limitations or the criteria that you look for. Uh, you, then that's why I think we people all started uh, decentralized application with the computing resources, storage, computing power, network, bandwidth. All of them are very easily quantifiable and verifiable. So I think the other, the second criteria would look to. Um, the third criteria, uh, and by the way, in in that uh, you know these two criteria, I think one interesting big category, broad category of thing that can be decentralized is information commodity. Anything that is related to information commodity middlemen like Craigslist, no forums, all of these websites pri primarily just being an in, uh, intermediate layer between buyer and seller or between multiple parties are very are fairly easy and simple business model. And most many of them, I would say, have a good chance of being, you know, uh, decentralized. Uh, or at least it would have some strong competitors in the decentralized world competing with them. I agree, but I think that one of the components within that, so you, you mentioned uh, information, so say we, we have a model where we can decentralize forms, for instance, I think one of, one of the sort of components that maybe perhaps we haven't figured out yet, and maybe it has just yet to be developed, is what, what is the platform? So now we have the internet that's reliant on, uh, on centralized servers and such. Uh, it, does that platform move into some sort of a protocol that has an app uh, which, which pulls that information uh, and, and displays it to users? There's still that user interface uh, I guess, component and, and delivery method that really hasn't quite been, I think, explored very much yet. So you're talking about a limitation of having to have a desktop client in order to be completely decentralized? Yeah, I mean, because we talk about you know, decentralized applications, but still the internet and websites, for instance, still rely on centralized yeah. servers. So where does that delivery mechanism come from then? Sure, sure. That's a great question. Um, my personal view is that obviously I think, you know, since like MainSafe and Ethereum are trying to decentralize the whole internet, that will make the whole decentralized a lot easier. Uh, but when you That's look a at big challenge. I mean, the yeah. decentralized whole internet uh, with with 25 years of, of infrastructure and protocols uh, sure. and yeah. such, that, that's a big challenge. Sure. Um, I think that decentralization is really a long spectrum, you know, from the current model of like mostly highly centralized all the way to completely peer-to-peer node-based decentralization. I think there's quite a bit of area in between. You know, you could start with something, for example, counterparty itself is run on a, you know, a number of federated uh, nodes, right? So I don't think necessarily that we have to go all the other extreme to claim victory. I think, you know, something in between could be good enough for now. You could have multiple people who are hosting their own web servers running a different copy of, you know, whatever thing that can be decentralized. So that's kind of my view. But obviously the ultimate kind of holy grail is to completely decentralize. Decentralize all the things. <laughs> yeah. But I don't necessarily, by the way, my other thoughts, other, you know, thinking from a different perspective is uh, I don't necessarily think that these, everything these kind of makes economic sense or efficient sense to decentralize everything. Uh, I think there's a large category of that, and we're just a tiny fraction of that yet. But it doesn't necessarily mean everything still needs to be decentralized. Okay. So uh, there's there's one issue I've been thinking about uh, quite a lot, uh, quite a few times when when talking about these topics uh, over the past uh, months, to six months or so. Uh, and and I know I think it's something you've also mentioned in uh, in a blog post you've written. And, and that's the whole question of, like, where do the profits go in this model? 
because yeah. uh, it seems today uh, startups that are successful they tend to be uh, they tend to try to build monopolies right so if we look at google or apple or facebook or linkedin or airbnb right. they all try to uh, build a, like a strong monopoly strong lock-in effects a strong brand so that they can charge a premium now it seems there's i don't where's the place for that in a decentralized world yeah, I think it's a super important for a DAC. Well, there are, I think, a different category of DACs. There are some DACs that you could potentially treat them as a public utility, like a gas company, a water company. You know, These kind of uh, companies doesn't necessarily have to get huge profits. Uh, all you need is essentially the base capital to compensate the people who initially develop it. And over time, it may or may not need tons of maintenance or development costs. Uh, then you have the category of decentralized application, which actually does require a fairly you know, significant continuous maintenance. With these projects, I think, uh, like the BitShares model, um, personally, I think that's maybe a good example. You actually take a transaction fee out of every transaction you made, you burn them, which is essentially uh, equivalent to paying dividends to all the kind of uh, shareholders or coin holders. Uh, I think there are some good examples out there. So can you explain why does it uh, adapt decentralized application model? Why do you need to have recurring uh, profits in that case? Yeah, so it, it depends, what right? Distinguishes for some public, that from the kind of the public utility thing? Sure. I mean, there are also other decks that may not even decided not to take any profits because, you know, someone could have maybe coded the apps on their free time and they're happy not to take any profits. You don't need a huge team from ongoing maintenance and development. I think that's totally fine if you want to make a profit free. So basically essentially become the public utility uh, in a broad sense, in a software sense. Uh, then you have a type of project which actually does need, like Ethereum. Ethereum is a good example, right? It's a very ambitious project. It needs many years of multi you know, development, phases of development. So I think kind of makes sense that you would need to build into some mechanism to either raise fund such that these tokens actually have economic value, uh, or you build it into the fuel system, such that every transaction, you know, when executed, takes a certain percent of profits, and then that will benefit back to the people who are holding the tokens. So I think it really depends on the cases. And do you think in the case of Ethereum, I guess one issue that comes up a lot, but I think it's, it's uh, applicable very general in these cases is, you know, you could just fork the projects, cut out the money supply, and, and you know, in that case, if it's an open source project, there's, there's really nothing uh, they can do. Uh, it seems the only protection against that is the sort of network effects, right? Because they're the first ones, the biggest ones, and maybe that protects them. Uh, sure. do, do you think that is the general dynamic of how it's going to play out so that basically the only thing protecting those decentralized applications are going to be network effects? And uh, I guess in cases where those don't exist, you won't be able to run these kind of models? I think it will primarily be a combination of network effects you mentioned, plus the team itself, right? Because people ultimately look at this project and see how likely Ethereum is going to deliver what they promise or how exciting it will be in the next two or three years. Consider that whether a worthwhile investment either into this ecosystem, if I'm building an application on top of Ethereum, um, or if I'm investing into the Ethereum tokens. I think of a combination of these two factors. And I don't see that fundamentally being different from the startup world, uh, especially, you know, I think ultimately, you know, competing for capital, uh, like Ethereum guys raised, you know, $50 million. That's a good bootstrap. You can't, you know, have another project easily raise that amount of capital to dedicate to that development, right? It, it's, it's hard to replicate that kind of capital. Um, so. True. 
So perhaps moving on to the, to the types of projects that uh, that you see um, developing on, on Quantify, um, are there any projects that are under development already today on your platform? Yes. Yeah, so we're talking obviously to a number of, of dApps. Uh, we can't talk too much about that yet right now, but you should see that uh, pretty soon. Uh, and we're definitely you know, looking for more interesting uh, kind of dApps in, in, in this space. Uh, we're also trying to do a lot of evangelization work to help more developers to get into this space, uh, including potentially running our own kind of DAC university program that actually starting have a courses of, of uh, kind of educating you know, talent developers, how can you decentralize your projects and thinking from a different perspective. You know, one challenge I think with the DAC is it's not like you just learn a new language, Objective-C or Swift, and you start a program the next day. I think educating DAC really requires a shift in thinking that what can I not, you know, you have to stop thinking about building that application as a company, you know, as a profit center, but instead, you know, moving towards a very decentralized model, which might be requiring token economy. So, so, so you guys aren't life yet, right? So we're not so, but we will be pretty soon. Um, uh, hopefully with our first project. Yeah. So do you know the launch date already or what's, what's your timeline? Uh, it's about roughly, I would say a month from now. Okay. Okay, great. Yes. And so perhaps we could touch on the legality of this because it, it has been brought up uh, a few times uh, on this show and, and, and off, off air as well. Um, the legality of issuing uh, equity uh, in the form of decentralized uh, tokens. But what's your strategy regarding uh, the legality of these crowd sales? Sure. Um, so, you know, uh, we have always been trying to be extremely transparent and uh, very professional the way that we do that. So we spent tons of time, you know, working with uh, top law firms in the space. Uh, actually, you know, a significant part of our cost, you know, on, is on the, on the legal cost. Uh, I think my personal view on this is I think we try to focus on decentralized applications. We don't want to touch anything that is to do with equity, triple equity, however you want to call it. I think, you know, uh, we would rather uh, see, you know, uh, Jobs Act and these coming. Uh, and some and Angelus and the traditional companies, I think, are better in doing that. Uh, I think the power of Bitcoin blockchain, what it really enables is the DAC. I think that's much more exciting. So I'm not too worried about the legality of that in, in that sense. But where do you think, where do you, token. But where, where do you think this is going to go? Because, I mean, uh, this year we've seen quite a few uh, regulatory bodies in North America and in Europe start addressing the topic of Bitcoin regulation from the... Uh, monetary side from the currency side right. and right. I think we can all expect that within the next year or so uh, those same regulatory bodies and governments are going to start uh, tackling crypto equity and, uh, and the sale of securities uh, do you fear that your that your model may uh, be subject to uh, the type of harsh regulation that we've seen proposed and for instance the bit, uh, bit license proposal in New York and others that we've seen uh, draft proposals for yeah, I mean, the current most of the discussion on a regulatory side is pro primarily about, you know, uh, money transmission. And uh, I, I don't think that's primarily an issue for us, given we're primarily talking about uh, token. Um, and then my view have on the token, the nature of the token has always been, it's first and foremost, it's a software token. It's a software license that you're selling. However, what you haven't dealt with before, I think the greater it comes with the fact that if you look at you know, Kickstarter, Tons of projects on Kickstarter, never, no one had a real question about Kickstarter. Uh, because primarily because Kickstarter's uh, products on Kickstarter is a you know, depreciated asset. 
Now you're talking about software token that may potentially appreciate in value or depreciate value. Uh, but I think that's a larger gray area. But I, in terms of its nature, we still believe it's primary software token. And so, this is something that our you know, law firm are pretty comfortable with as well. So I'm not too worried about that. So uh, I guess, is this uh, kind of a similar position to the one that Ethereum took in uh, sort of yes. carrying it, the yes. product yes. instead of a product? So, I mean, I, I, I think it's great that this worked out uh, with Ethereum that way. I, I'm yep. just really curious in how many countries and how many places they would have been able to uh, get this through. Uh, you know, because I, I, I think it's at least sort of open transportation. Is Ether really a product or is it more like a security? Uh, now, of course, it has uh, characteristics of both. And uh, in terms of uh, a tax regulation uh, perspective, of course, uh, for Ethereum, it's much better if it's a product because then they can do a lot of things. Um, but uh, I, I personally have quite some doubts that this will really be uh, replicable in many instances. And I could very much see that, especially once these tokens become traded on exchanges, uh, that then perhaps in the future, people will say, well, uh, perhaps this is more like a security. Um, uh, yeah, do you see that nature too, or uh, did you... Uh, I, just, I see a little bit differently. I mean, I mean, the fact that you can trade them easily just mean that you have a more liquid market. Uh, the fact that you can trade any electronics gadgets on Craigslist doesn't mean make them any more like security, right? So I, I don't see, or you can trade your licensed copy of Windows or Mac, you know, on, on Craigslist doesn't really make them the security. Um, you know, I, I think the fact that security is primarily tied to the ownership in a corporation, and they're not even a corporation per se in the decentralized application world. Yeah. So I, I just don't see that being a very strong. Uh, so, so something that I, when I was kind of reading about Coinify beforehand that uh, struck me, you know, what was quite, was quite interesting. So the, your co-founder was the CEO of uh, Blue Seed before, correct? Yep. Yep. Uh, yep. And so Blue Seed, for those who don't know, uh, and then you can correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, the project is basically uh, to put a ship uh, or sort of a ship island in front of uh, Silicon Valley where people could live on, build startups on, and uh, that would be an international border, so not subject to U.S. jurisdiction. So I guess uh, from a regulatory perspective, you could do a lot more things, and also you wouldn't have to get a U.S. visa. Yeah. Uh, so it's kind of a very libertarian uh, a project. Uh, got a lot of sir. I don't know if it's going anywhere or not. Um but uh, I think it's quite interesting also from the perspective of Coinify, you know, because it, it seems to me, and, and perhaps you're right, and this is not going to be the case, but it seems to me likely that uh, many of these innovations will be pushed abroad and, and people will have to perhaps go to places like that to do uh, controversial projects in this decentralized space. Uh, so... Yeah, it's, it's just, I thought it was an interesting connection and, you know, I'm, sure. I guess oh, at least... I'm yeah. glad you picked up this uh, connection because I, I think the fact that Dario and I were very philosophically connected online is the fact that we're really using different technologies to solve really the same similar problems. Uh, you know, Dario was, uh, Lucy was all about uh, building a ship that enables innovation more freely, a permissionless innovation. Uh, I think, you know, what Quantify is trying to do is building, using crypto technology instead of physical, the atom technology, to build something that allows people to more freely innovate. 
uh, a place where you can know more freely competing. So, yeah, I think it's very similar uh, line goals philosophically. And of course, it may actually be that in the end, you will need both to make it happen, no? in that you actually need uh, to <laughs> physical offices uh, to those places like that. To, yeah, uh, we to hopefully won't get to that space. I hope the regulators yeah. you know, won't go to that extreme. But yeah, <laughs> I think there's an interesting connection there. Okay. I, I, I think yeah. as, 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 the, as the saying goes, we should just go to the moon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We've been saying it all along. We just need to go to the moon and nobody will bother us up there. So where's that project? Uh, is that project still uh, being developed or is it kind of falling through? Uh, you mean Quantify the platform? No, Blueseed. Uh, Blueseed. Yeah. Oh, the Blueseed. Okay. Uh, yeah, so I think the Blue Seed was having some funding challenges. It, it was a wonderful, you know, very exciting project, uh, but I think we had some major funding challenges. Uh, okay. The initial amount of funding is pretty, pretty uh, significant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's an expensive, yeah. expensive ship to build. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, that's something, you know, the easier about software. <laughs> so much easier. That you don't need that kind of a large, you know, you can't do like a minimum viable product for a ship, unfortunately. The minimum is, you know, 30, 40 million dollars. Yeah. Uh, so talking about fundraising, uh, can you talk us a bit about, uh, through your experiences, uh, you know, as, a, as an entrepreneur, uh, raising money for a project like that, uh, that I think is very much sort of, at, I guess, at the edge of what people are doing in this space? Sure. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I, this is like our second round of funding, $1 million, you know, from IDG, Z Park, uh, you know, Brock's uh, and his annual syndicates uh, and another Chinese fund. So I think w the majority kind of my takeaway is uh, people are really excited. And that's something I, I, I'm really happy about. That I did spend a lot of time actually educating, you know, these investors about what is that, you know, why it's exciting, uh, why do people need to come this kind of platform and what kind of innovation this to bring. And I am really glad that these investors are super supportive. Uh, Brock obviously has been an early investor in a number of uh, DAP projects already. Uh, so that, I think that definitely helps. And, uh, you know, the IDG has also been an early investor in Coinbase. So they definitely have this knowledge base of what this whole kind of crypto ecosystem is about. Um, the other kind of validation that I'm, I'm kind of excited about is certainly when you look at most of the projects that crowd sale, they're primarily about uh, selling to crypto enthusiasts who had a belief in the system. But I think over time, we will see a shift or a balance towards a combination of individual kind of backers who like the project and kind of the hobbyists, but also these kind of more institutional or traditional venture investors in these crypto assets. Uh, and I think that's a really important development that kind of enlarges the ecosystem. Uh, you know, Bitcoin overall is only about 7 or $8 billion dollars uh, ecosystem. When you talk about active capital, it's probably you know, one or two billion dollar. Uh, and you know, Ethereum by itself already attracted fifty million dollar. I don't know how many more active capital can have the interest, appetite for these new projects. So it's important that we kind of get more of the connecting, bridging the older world, the legacy world, and, and the crypto ecosystem. Well, what you just mentioned there is is interesting because uh, these technologies really enable for that type of crypto investor profile to emerge. I mean, because in, investing in companies uh, so far has been you know, quite, uh, it's, it's not, as, it's not as easy. Um, who, who do you think this crypto investor, who's, who's your typical crypto investor? Is it somebody who's in, who's, you invested in tech or could it be like just about anybody? Like, uh, 
I think that uh, we're, we're, we're kind of opening the doors to a whole bunch of investment from people who have nothing to do with, 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 uh, with, with cryptocurrency companies or, or tech companies where just, just about anybody could just walk in and start investing in, in any kind of business. So uh, what are your thoughts on that? Sure. Um, I think, yeah. So I think it'll be a fairly different scene or profile uh, mix of the investor group. Traditionally, startup, you know, you have different stage of funds. You have seed investor ABC rounds, you know, based on their fund size. Now, I think you will see probably a mixture and hopefully a mixture, a healthy mixture of those individual kind of backers who are either excited about the project and technology themselves, or it could be people who, you know, potentially looking for some kind of return or want that project to happen. And then you also have a people who are playing kind of the lead investor role uh, as an institution uh, who is either doing it as cheap investment or, you know, looking forward for certain returns. So I think you will probably see a healthy balance of those. And that's what we're trying to bring as well as value added. Yeah, we've touched on this topic uh, too before with uh, a few people. Uh, I know with Parmi Galembi and also with, uh, with Bastian, I, I touched on that. Uh, and that's the, the sort of limitations I think that venture capitalists have in general in, uh, you know, Correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, from my understanding, uh, most venture capitalists wouldn't actually be allowed to buy uh, some kind of crypto share asset or something like that. Uh, yeah. So do yeah. you think we will see uh, funds in the near future, I guess, raising uh, perhaps new funds with uh, different uh, terms if they're limited partners that would actually allow them to do this kind of activity? Yeah, sure. Uh, so yeah, so we definitely you know noticed that you know certain funds actually most of the I think traditional venture fund has a, a limited partner agreements that you know doesn't allow them to invest in non-equity assets. And I think in at this stage, you know, DAPs wouldn't definitely would not be considered as equity. Um, so yes, uh, and that's a, one of the problems that we're actually working on. Uh, uh, there are a couple, I think one or two funds at least I don't know. A decent DAPS fund itself by David Johnson. I think they are actually a fund that dedicated yeah. to assets. Uh, and I think you'll definitely see an emergence of more of these kind of funds happening. On the other hand, there may also be a way to bridge the two worlds. You know, we can potentially uh, build certain kind of a bridge layer, uh, bridging the, old, the traditional fund structure into this new ecosystem. That's, kind oh, that's of interesting, right? So I guess uh, you could have potentially uh, venture capital firms investing into uh, the equity of a startup that then buys uh, some of those assets. So perhaps that would be a sort of circumvent way of achieving that. Yep, potentially. I mean, if you look at Ripple, the, I would say, you know, that part of the value of, you know, Andrews and Harwood's investment in Ripple is probably for the Ripple of the currency. Right. Uh, I mean, Ripple holds a large amount of XRP. So you're, you're absolutely right on that. Now, perhaps we could take these last few minutes of the show to just kind of, you know, think about the future. Uh, you know, I, I like to think about this kind of singularity stuff. Uh, and and um, you wrote this blog post on the uh, Cornerfly uh, blog, uh, 2020, a call for DApps and DAOs. Um, could you just briefly summarize the article? And then maybe after we could kind of, start thinking kind of like pie in the sky stuff and where this is kind of all going in the future. Sure. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, this article is partially inspired by Y Combinator's recent article, a request for startups, right? So they listed a number of exciting spaces that they would like to see to apply to YC, you know, anywhere from energy, financial services, infrastructure, et cetera. Uh, I think that's the kind of thing, uh, you know, in crypto space, I don't think we have a lack of technology. That's a part of the thing people work very hard on. But we have a really a lack of good use cases 
And that's something we're trying to uh, help out with community and also seeking feedback from the community. What are the legitimate use cases that we would like to see? So the 2020 you know, kind of thought experiment is, you know, five years from now, uh, not too far away, uh, is, you know, if you have a peek into the future, what kind of decentralized applications do you think will become part of our life, but you don't have it today? Uh, so let's start from there. Uh, so the first part, I was trying to list out a number of criteria. I'll cover some of them. You know, what is the guideline? What are the guiding principles? The thing that actually makes sense to be decentralized, such that they will be more economically efficient, uh, such that there will be less, you know, monopoly, et cetera. So there's a couple of things, commoditization, you know, low profit, et cetera. The second part actually started with a list of things that we have observed or people we have talked to uh, that kind of give us feedback couple of areas, uh, anywhere from financial systems to kind of storage of private data, uh, you know, for example, your smartphone contact and these kind of stuff. And then you have these information commodity marketplaces. Uh, so a number of areas that we are uh, trying to find legitimate use cases for. So uh, what's the one you're most excited about? Um, to be to be very honest with you, I think all of these are one are pretty exciting, but I haven't found really the kind of uh, killer use cases that people would call it yet. So I'd love to hear you know feedback from from this audience or yeah anyone who's interested to talk more. And we're very excited to help you fund that you know design the right app for it. Yeah. It, it seems like one uh, one of those use cases that has gotten a lot of uh, a lot of projects in the area is a sort of a decentralized uh, file storage. Uh, yeah, exactly. Why do you think that is? Well, I, I think the, the fact that um, I think it met one of the per, you know, two or three criteria that I mentioned about. It's commoditized to some extent. I mean, hard drive space is super commoditized. Uh, number two, you have it's super verifiable. You know, every you know, gigabytes of space, you know, you can verify very easily whether someone retrieved that, uh, provide the space and able to retrieve the file from it. Uh, and also, it also potentially you know, uh, approaches, I think, kind of the Airbnb model. When you actually look at, interestingly, so when you look at economically, uh, the economics of a decentralized storage space may or may not actually be more expensive than a centralized server farm, right? But when you buy, you have a large economy scale. But the good thing about that, the other way to think about that, you know, it's an Airbnb model, that you're actually, you know, reusing, utilizing the existing spaces that are kind of wasted anyway. Uh, so I think there are a number of criteria that it hits and kind of excited about people. But, and along that line, you could have storage, you have computing power, which you could do a number of things within, like 3D rendering or supercomputing um, or like big data, you know, Hadoop jobs, a number of these things that you could do along with that. And these are the things that I expect to see very, very soon within you know, this year or, or next year uh, to kind of get started. And then you move on to things that are kind of less cryptographically verifiable. Uh, you know, potentially like uh, transportations, Ubers, and you know, these kind of stuff that are less verifiable uh, or insurances and more complicated too. Um, but, but it will take a while, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, I think we're sort of at the very beginning of a very long journey now. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one actually, I would probably name one of my favorite among this list at least. Uh, is I think it's a decentralized health insurance. Uh, I mean, which today we already have betting systems, simple betting system on counterparty. And insurance is essentially a probability game as well. Uh, it's a much more complicated, obviously. You have, you know, risk profiling uh, kind of things. Uh, but I, I think it, it's kind of thing that gets really could disrupt the current uh, uh, kind of insurance system, especially in the U.S. The medical healthcare, you know, bills are just enormous and just doesn't make a lot of sense for someone who's not doing tons of good job 
take a huge profit out of each insurance. All the insurance company doing is pulling money in and then redistributing these money back to you. And they take a huge cut out of it. I just don't think that kind of thing uh, is necessary in the long term. So perhaps uh, very briefly, can you, can you explain how do you think a decentralized health insurance would do a better job at that? It, it seems like uh, I have a difficulties picturing that, to be honest. If it, uh, uh, sure. I mean, just, just what it would yeah. look like. Even. Sure. I haven't been very deep thought into it, but frequently, uh, you know, you could basically, the, the first thing you start with adapt and look at what are the roles. Uh, and when you look at insurance, it's primarily people who are providing the capital who are also the same one being actually insured. So you have the payout process, uh, which says, you know, there are a number of events that we're going to pay you out. Uh, and then you have the people who are actually doing the uh, kind of evaluation of what is the risk profile of this certain uh, use case, of this certain event, an earthquake uh, insurance, for example, or a healthcare insurance, which says based on your healthcare uh, profile, health history, what is the probability of that? And then when you connect that, for example, to something like 23andMe, you know, a DNA database, which says, indicates what's your probability of having that disease, and therefore your insurance premium is that, at X. Right. So you, now you start having a pool of funds, uh, you have a probability database, and then all you people doing it in a very simplistic way is people putting in Bitcoin. And therefore, when you build a large enough, you may have a critical mass, a pool, such that your risk is significantly diversified. Uh, once you reach that point, you know, your deck probably potentially gets started running. And when certain events happens, uh, there could be a validator, a claim agent that actually, you know, independently or a combination of claim agents. Uh, in the network would evaluate is that a real event, uh, what exactly happens, what should be the payout be, and then we distribute these funds. So, cool. It's yeah, no, big, that's a, but it's an interesting thought experience. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm sure it's, uh, it's the sort of thing that is really interesting and really, really hard to do. And of course, it gets into another area where you'll be uh, battling with an insane amount of regulatory. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh yeah, definitely, <laughs> definitely. But that's why it's exciting. But but if if you wanna if you wanna maximize uh, your uh, your sort of uh, confrontational encounters with the regulators, then, then this is the area to go because you won't <laughs> oh, you won't only have like money right. transmission and and yes. perhaps unlicensed yes. of security, but also health insurance. We're going to fight five regulation bodies at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> speaking, speaking of which, are you, are you incorporating only in the U.S. or you have offices uh, elsewhere? So far, we're only in the U.S., uh, but we are, we're looking into offshore as well. Okay. Cool. Uh, is there something else you want to cover before we um, end the show? Um, I think that's a really good conversation. You know, we are super excited about kind of bringing this new layer of radical transparency and kind of the kind of some of the professionalism into the space and trust, I guess, mostly. Uh, I, I think this, you know, crypto space is a very exciting space, but unfortunately, in the last few years, I think we have significant amount of trust debt, I would say, uh, that kind of accumulated for a while. Uh, it seems a lot of things, good things are just not being done in a very professional, transparent uh, layer. So we're trying to view that kind of transparency and uh, we're trying to have a really good user experience, fantastic user experience, um, and also bringing the liquidity and capital uh, from a little bit from the legacy world into the system. Uh, so we're hopefully really trying to kind of ignite this, this new economy of decentralized applications. And if people want to uh, exactly learn about 
coinify. Sorry, so, if I may add, you know, one more thing is I, sure. I think one of the really exciting future where we're kind of really passionate about is imagine, you know, 20, 30 years from now, or even shorter time, 15 years from now, uh, that people will no longer treat a full-time job as something that you are supposed to be doing. Today, almost everyone expected to have some kind of full-time job. Uh, but in the future, you know, you could be just freely associated with a number of decks. You know, in the morning, you might be working, uh, driving a few hours for a decentralized group. You know, in the afternoon, you could be coding for a while, contributing to an Ethereum project, and you get paid based on smart contracts. Uh, you could, you know, all of us, I think, as humans, are usually gifted with a number of ways, and we have a number of interests. And having a full-time job is not necessarily the best manifestation of that kind of talent and interest. And DAC, I think, as it's by its nature, is free association. You enter into the system as a miner, you can freely leave any time. You compete based on your skill sets and your outputs. I think that's kind of thing that I felt like DAC. A lot of people would say, hey, does DAC kill a lot of jobs? I don't think so. I think DAC kills the inefficiency in the system and move people and, and track people towards the more efficient and exciting jobs uh, and the thing that they're really passionate about. Uh, I think that's kind of the thing that makes me excited about that. It's not a zero-sum game. Well said. Indeed, yes. <laughs> It is it is crazy to think about this kind of world, right? Where you just sort of freely work a bit here and get paid by some sort of uh, non-identifiable, like non non-located entity in the net uh, that this gives you work, distributes your work output. It's a, it's a yeah, fascinating. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so if people want to learn more about it, so first of all, uh, important to point out, uh, Coinify is written with a K because uh, there's not a Coinify written with a C. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's uh, K-O-I-N-I-F-Y.com. So uh, I, you can uh, sign up for the newsletter there. Perhaps that's the best way to, you know, kind of uh, be in touch when... Uh, when you actually go live and uh, people can try it out. Uh, yeah. Also, uh, also on Twitter, you uh, coinify uh, the, the same thing at coinify. Yep. You know, feel free to shoot us an email at hello at coinify.com if you have any DApps ideas or anything that you want to discuss about DApps and DApps. Cool. Well, uh, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, it was uh, really great talking with you and uh, I'm super excited uh, to see what's going to come out of Coinify. Sure. Thank you for having me. Uh, great conversation with both of you. Um, so uh, thanks so much for listening. If you want to support our show, uh, then you can do so by giving us a tip. We very much appreciate that. And you can do that at appsenderbitcoin.com slash tips. You can also leave us an iTunes review that helps people find the show. And, you know, you can let us know what we're doing well, but we can still improve. Um, and finally, we also send out a newsletter every Friday. Uh, and that's at epsenbitcoin.com slash newsletter. And I just want to say thank you to our one viewer. <laughs> our one live our one live viewer. We have one live viewer right now. I'm not gonna say his name, but he's in Los Angeles. So if you're listening, thank you. Thank you, yes. Did he stay on the whole time? Uh well, I don't know. Uh, there was one viewer pretty much throughout the whole throughout the whole show. Uh, uh do you know who you are? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, but, uh, but yeah, this was exciting. I, I really like this format, and uh, yeah. I think we should do it again sometime. I mean, yeah. we should probably start doing it uh, regularly. 
Yeah, absolutely. So uh, if you're listening to this in the usual way, then yeah, you probably weren't aware that, that we're actually now doing it in video, etc. Uh, for the first time. So I guess uh, keep a sort of lookout on Twitter. And uh, when we do it the next time, we'll announce beforehand that, uh, you know, we'll do a live on video sh episode. Uh, yeah, and uh, I think we also have some uh, interesting content coming out uh, soon from uh, Sean Jones. Uh, she did some, uh, produced some content for us at the uh, Crypto Valley uh, conference in uh, in the Isle of Man and also at Inside Bitcoins in London. So you can uh, look forward to that. So, uh, well, thanks so much and we look forward to being back next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.